Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. This morning, as we continue on in in our our service, um, we have been in a journey recently um, walking through the, the last part of the book of Romans, and we've called this, this idea of the series Transform, seeing life differently, seeing life through God's lens, the way that he wants us to see it is, as his followers. So as we continue that, what we're going to do these last uh, couple of chapters of Romans, uh, starting verse 14, so if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, we're going to be starting there. But these last couple of chapters, I believe there's a, there's a theme that we're going to see begin to emerge that Paul is going to, to share with us as he wraps up his, this famous book of Romans to the friends there at that church. And so I want to begin by painting a picture of the word that we're going to kind of see over the next couple of weeks. And I want to do it with um, this morning, just kind of give you an idea. How many can see what I have in my hand? I mean, you know what these things are, right? What, what, they're, they're Legos. Everybody got that? Everybody know what a Lego is? You still got some at home, right? Okay. Uh, what we want to talk about today, a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of being with my grandgirls in, in Texas, and we went to a place called Legoland. Anybody ever been to Legoland? Okay. Legoland, amazing place to visit, right? It's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of fun. And, but here's what the first thing you'll notice. You walk in there, and there are literally billions of these things all over this building. And, I, and I'm not exaggerating. They are all over the place. There's baskets. You can put together your own Legos. They're just sitting there. There's ones you can sell, of course, and I mean, buy in the store and all those kind of things. But then uh, amazingly, and if you've been to a place like this, what they can make with these Legos. And they, the, the cities, they literally had a, the city built and airports and airplanes. They had the, the space shuttle that actually went up in the air. I mean, they have all this stuff. They have a guy that just sits there all day thinking up new things to build with Legos. That's his job, and you can watch him doing it. I mean, this is incredible thing about, about Legos. But here's, here's what I want us to talk about. Here's a picture I want to paint. My, my life is not totally unlike a Lego. It's a sense that I, I've been made by a creator and I've been made in a special way. But here's, here's what I've learned, and we're going to talk about it when we get to this last part. Is there something very spectacular about uh, what it means, what God has done in my life? Out, out of all the billions of other Legos, all of you included, all the billions of other Legos, God chose me. And you've got to understand, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, out of all of the people on the earth, God loves you. He loves you personally. He sent his son to die for you. You are a special creation of his, and then he sent his son so that you could be a recreation, so you could be one of his children. And out of all of the billions of Lego pieces, you are specifically chosen by God if you're one of his children, if you've accepted his gift of grace. So here I stand as one of God's children. Here, this single little Lego piece. But that's the cool thing about Legos is it was never meant to be this Lego piece by itself. Legos were never meant to exist in isolation. I mean, who wants a single Lego piece? I mean, it's not much good by itself other than in that middle of the night when your kids don't pick them up and you step on your bare feet. Anybody done that? I mean, now we all know Lego pieces at that point in life, right? But other than that, what good is a Lego piece by itself? Here's the thing. Sometimes as followers of Christ, this Lego piece, God has poured into, his, uh, into our lives and, and we tend to kind of, uh, there's a, a potential that we would be, want to be kind of isolated on our own, kind of doing this thing on our own or not connecting with others. And God didn't make us that way. I mean, we say it around here all the time. God never made Lone Ranger Christians. 
He didn't put a Lego piece out there by itself to kind of exist on his own. He gave us ability to, together. There's sometimes there's Lego pieces, and I'm sure this isn't anyone in this room, but sometimes we get to looking at ourselves, and it's like, I, I really don't need anybody else. I mean, you know, I, look at me. I'm, I, I think I've got the sharpest edges of any Lego piece in the, blo- in the bag, right? Or, and look at those round things. That is, that is the most, that's the best looking round pieces on any Lego piece. And, that, and so I don't need anybody else. I can do it. But here's the thing. God didn't make us that way. When God put the leg, he didn't make us to, be, to do this alone, nor, and he will show us that we were made to do this together. Here's the point we want to get at is as, as these pieces, we were, we were made for something bigger. We were made for something that exists bigger than us. And, and the, the idea, and I want to thank one of our, our young people, Reg uh, Pope, who put this together for me. I mean, he did a great job, by the way. This is, it represents the fact that God has designed us as these Lego pieces to also then be a part of, a, of a, a, what we'll call a, a building for him. In fact, here's how Peter puts it. First Peter, chapter number two, he says, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. You could say it this way. You are living Lego pieces that God is putting together to build his spiritual temple, that God is putting together. Now, we know the church is not a building. The church is not a, a, an edifice of, of brick and mortar. A, a, the church is the people. We are the church, but here's what he has designed is he refers to us together in what he has put these Lego pieces together as his building, his temple. We are forming a building to show his glory, and he has put us together for that reason. In fact, Ephesians chapter number two, listen to how Paul describes it. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He said, this building that God is building that he puts us together in is so magnificent because the very, very essence of it is Jesus himself. He's the cornerstone, and then it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who have all come before us. So we're, we're in this together with Isaiah and, and Elijah and Jeremiah and, and Matthew and Mark and Luke and, and, and John. And these, we, we're together in this doing a work that God, for his glory. And he's putting us in these pieces into this, into this building. Verse 21, he says, And in whom this whole building is joined together, and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And then look at verse 22. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's amazing that when God chose me, he then allows me to be part of something bigger than me. It's not just me alone. I can't do this alone, but I wasn't meant to. And I was meant to be a part of something bigger, of a temple bigger than me. And that's what God has put us together to do. But here's what we know. If this is true, which it is, that God has made us to be a part of this temple. And, and, it, and we'll, we'll see over the next couple of weeks. Sometimes, you know, we want to, sure, I'll be a part of the temple. I want to be right here where everybody can see me. Or maybe I, I want to be back. It, it, the, the point is God has placed us. He has put us in his, his church and his building to make a difference. But if this is true, which it is, and it's this important, and God has put us, designed us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, then here's what we know will be true. The enemy is going to try to do everything he can to defeat that in our lives. He's going to try to do everything he can to, to 
take the church out of its ability to be what God is. If, if his goal is for us to be together, to do a work together, the enemy's going to try as best he can to divide us, to hinder the process of doing what God has called us to do. Here's how Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, right? So you've been chosen. That's a special deal. That's a big deal that God has called you. You've been called. So live the way God has called you to live. Live a life worthy. But then notice how he describes verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This is important. You live the right way, but there are some specific attitudes, and it, it relates to the people within the building, within the church that you're supposed to be a part of. And here's the truth. Sometimes we're hard to get along with, and we're going to need patience. And it's, it's hard to deal with others at times. All those other Lego pieces are kind of a problem to us, some issues. And look at the next verse. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is a unity that God has designed. He has put all the Lego pieces the way he has designed them to be. He's made the unity, but what does he say? You make every effort to keep it. It's going to take everything we have to, keep the, to, to maintain, to do what God has called us to do. I read a quote this week. It's kind of long. You'll see it on your outline, but I want to fill it in today. It says this, one tangible evidence for the validity of Christianity, for Christianity being real in this world, is when a local assembly of believers operates on the basis of mutual love between people whose only common denominator is the relationship to Christ as Savior and Lord. There's something divine about when a bunch of people who are different and, and, and look different and act different, and they have all these different opinions and ideas, but they have one common denominator, and that is they all know Jesus. And when that group can, put, can come together in unity and do what God has called them to do, that validifies the fact God is, has done something in this world, and he is doing something. It makes Christianity that much more real. That's what Paul is telling us is important in these last chapters. So when we start Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which we've looked at every week for a while, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the way the world thinks about things, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God transform the way you see things. And what we're going to see in this last area of, of Romans, that is that as believers, we need a renewal in a very specific part of our minds, and that is transformed when we're together in unity. We're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks how important this unity is that God has designed. In these last couple chapters of this book, you're going to see he's going to talk about some dangers, some threats to the unity, and how to deal with them. But then in the last chapter specifically, he's going to give us a beautiful picture of what this unity can do, what this unity looks like in, in, God's, in God's opinion, the way he's put this together. We already know, if you've been with us in this study in Romans, these last few chapters, Paul has said repeatedly things about love one another. Um, he actually says love is to be genuine, no masks. He goes on to say love should be, a, we should feel like it's a debt. It's something that we just continually need to pay to others is to love one another. So now he's going to take this in this, in this section and show how this love relates to this unity 
by the time we get to chapter 16, last chapter of Romans, some of the last words that Paul says in this very famous letter, verse number 17, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and obstacles. You might circle that obstacles because that's going to be a big word here soon. They'll put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. He's talking about love. He's going to tell us the importance of unity, and he's going to say, but be careful because the enemy is going to do whatever he can to make that not happen in, in your church, in your existence as God's people in a community. And I believe all these chapters are leading to that particular warning, and that's exactly what it is. It's a warning. It's a, it's a, it's a red light for all believers to say that God has a design for us to be building a temple, but the enemy wants to destroy it. So look out. In fact, he, he repeats that in several other letters, the church of Corinth, to the elders and the church of Ephesus, to the church of Colossae. All those people, he's saying this is an issue. It was an issue 2,000 years ago. It continues and it will continue to be an issue within the church that we, we maintain, we, we do every, make every effort to keep the unity. But I also know that this was specific for Rome. For this church in Rome, there were some of these issues were particularly what they were dealing with that were causing them problems, and he's going to show us how that he dealt with them. But what I found very interesting is the problems that he lists were 2,000-year-old problems, but in a lot of ways, they still exist today in some form or fashion. So here's how he starts this whole section. Chapter 14, verse number 1. After he's told us to wake up, and to all in chapter 13, here's what he says. Accept the one whose faith is weak, or your version might say, who is weak in the faith, without quarreling over disputable matters. Now that kind of launches us into this thought of transformed, and we're going to learn about how important this is. So let's unpack this verse a little bit. Let's look at that phrase, whose faith is weak. We're to accept them, or, or you could say, who is weak in the faith. Let's make sure we understand. He's going to talk in these two chapters specifically and, and he kind of sets up a picture within the church. There are those who are weak and that those who are, and he will use the word in chapter 15, those who are strong. But he's not saying that the weak are bad Christians and the strong are the good Christians. He's not, he's not labeling it that way. He's not saying that uh, w- when he says weak in the faith as if you don't have any faith. He's not, uh, the disciples one time they asked Jesus, please increase our faith because they didn't feel like they could. That's not the word that he's using here. What he's talking about is the way that, that the people are learning, the, the, the the method in which they're growing and the things that they think they can and can't do as followers of Christ. And on one side, there may be some in areas that are weak and some that are areas that are, are strong in their conviction. Here's how it works out. Let me give you a historical understanding a little bit. In this early church, it would have been all of the churches we have listed, but here in Rome as well, there were those who had been a part of the Jewish system for years, but now they, they're followers of Christ. They believe him to be the Messiah. They're now his, his followers, but they still have had the, the Jewish beliefs for all, and, and they're now followers. They believe in him. They're not trusting on their old Jewish beliefs to save them, but there's still some of the things that they grew up with that, are, that they feel that should maybe still be a part of what they're doing as believers and they still, they're bringing that into the church. But then there are those in the church who didn't have that background, and they don't understand what's going on. And so they begin, it's just a breeding ground for, for issues that could affect the, the, the unity of this particular church. But what does he say that we're to do? Look what he says, except without quarreling over disputable matters. 
I would encourage you to circle those two words. That's our key. What we're talking about here is these are, this version says disputable matters. Your version could say differences of opinions or some of the or disputes over doubtful things. What we're talking about is, is that the Bible itself is clear and God's will is clear on, on several very key items. There are things that God says and we just do. It's not a matter of agreeing. It's a matter of obedience. It's what God calls us to do. But there are areas that the Bible is not dogmatically clear about or maybe is silent on certain issues. And that's where we come into what's called disputable matters. Matters that the Bible is not clear on, but that people will have a difference of opinion on. And if there's a difference of opinion, then a dispute is possible, which potentially can harm this, the, the issue of unity. And that's what Paul wants to, to understand, is that there, there is this possibility. There's this presence in this church. Let's make sure we know how to deal with it. So here's what he does to this church in Rome. He gives two specific examples of what, it, of what these, these disputable matters might look like for this church. But as I said, they, we're, we're going to see how some of these 2,000 years ago, they're still kind of relevant for us today. Here's what he was going to talk about. He's going to talk about food and special days. Let me show you. Verse number 2 of 14, he says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. That's interesting because here's, here's what I know. Me, being a meat lover that I am, just being honest, my dietary uh, issues include meat, right? I mean, what's my favorite pizza? You guessed it, meat lovers or meatza fiesta, whatever you want to call it, right? And then you give me a side of bacon. That's, that's, that's pizza. That's food for me, right? I get that. So as I read this verse, uh, in my mind, I, I want to say that what Paul is saying, I, I want to be able to say that the person, that a person, only a person who is weak in faith could ever be a vegetarian. That's what I'd want to say, okay? That, but that's not what the Bible's saying there, okay? That's not it at all. He's not, so you vegetarians, don't send me nasty emails or throw anything. I'm just joking, right? That's not what he's saying, but here's what he is saying. He's saying that what people have done, if, if you're a vegetarian, veggies are your thing, you know, I don't get it, but go for it, right? But that's not a faith issue. If you do vegetarian, maybe because, or you, highly vegetables, because it's a dietary, it's better, you feel like it's better for you, then kudos, that's great, but it's not a faith issue. But what some of these people had done in this church is they had elevated this, this thing of the diet and this meat to, to an issue of, of faith, and they'd made it as something that would determine your spirituality of whether you ate or didn't eat a particular kind of food. Remember, we talked about the, the Jewish heritage that was a part of this. You look in the Old Testament, and then they've added other laws along the way that they had some very strict ideas about what they ate. There were certain meats that they would not eat. They would not go near. But then there were other meats that they would only eat if it was killed and prepared a certain way. You ever heard the word kosher, right? If it was kosherly prepared and, and, and killed, all those kind of things. So here's what they were finding, though. It was hard to find places or find uh, this resource that they could trust that it was all done the right way. So they just felt the best thing to do is let's just not eat meat at all. They became vegetarians. Now, the truth is there's nothing wrong with that opinion if that's what you want to do. But what they did is they brought that into the church and they began to say this is the way it's supposed to be. But there were others in the church who didn't grow up that way or saying, I don't get that. It makes no sense to me. 
I know I, Jesus didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say what you're saying. And so they begin to have this conflict, this, this issue between one another, their, their backgrounds, and, and, and it's, this now becomes this place. Here's what we, uh, Corinthians talks about, that if you were to buy meat a lot of times, it was meat in the marketplace. It was meat that had a, a formerly been a part of uh, the worship of false gods, the pagan gods. They'd used it, and then, then they'd take what was left over, and they'd sell it in the market. And so there was Christians who were saying, listen, if you eat that meat, that's just like you're, you're worshiping the idols. You can't eat that. And some of the other Christians saying, it's just a hamburger. It doesn't mean anything. And so now we have on both sides, we have people who believe this and people who believe that. It's not a faith issue. It's not about uh, the error of the truth of Scripture. It's about an opinion that was formulated. And now we've got this possibility to eat or not to eat. That's the question, right? Should we do this? And you have criticism and you have contempt. And now it's starting to divide the temple, divide the church of God. But there was another one, and that was days on the calendar. Verse number 5 One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Again, for some, there was a reverence for even the Sabbath day. And, of course, the Jewish tradition, the Ten Commandments, and the, and the way that they kept it, not even just keeping the Sabbath, but they actually then divided divine rules that make sure you wouldn't break the Sabbath on accident. So they had these rules going along with the Sabbath commandments. Remember, Jesus actually had some run-ins with people based, saying that he didn't respect the Sabbath correctly. And, and so this, that issue, but there were also other feast days and other, other events that people held in high esteem, and you needed to do it that way or you wouldn't be a spiritual and or this is the right way to do it and we need to be doing it that way. And then there were others who said it's just Saturday. And controversy begins to boil. Now, here's, here's the thing that some of us would say, wouldn't it have been easier then for them just to form a different church? Let's have a meat eater's church and a vegetarian church. <laughs> well, I know which one I'm joining, okay? I'm just saying. But you, you got this church and you got that. You got a, a Sunday church and a Saturday church. Why, let's just, rather than fight, let's all just separate and just do our own thing. But you see, that's the exact point that Paul's trying to make. God designed a temple that's made up of people that are different and that people are, that are going to disagree on some disputable matters. And what he wants us to learn is God has put us together and we can do this. We can get along. God wasn't surprised when he put the church together. He didn't look and go, oh, wait, they can't get along. I can't put them together. God knows how we feel. God knows our opinion. God knows how we do it. And he, he still puts us together because he's got a work for us to do. We're part of something bigger. But, it, but if we allow these disputable matters to separate us, then we're missing what God has in mind. It's about what God has, God has broken down the walls between us all, but then very easy for us to build walls again. And God wants us to tear them down. That's what this whole thing is about. Here's the question. Are any of these issues still relevant today? <laughs> Truth is, yes. Sadly, even some of the very issues that were addressed there, there are still people who have very strong opinions on what you should eat and shouldn't eat. What you should eat or drink, shouldn't eat or drink. There are people who have still struggle over this particular day. There are those who, who still say we should, not, we should worship together on Saturday. And there are those who say because it's the Lord's day he resurrected, we should worship on Sunday, which we do. But then there are those who say, and so you can only do it Saturday, or you should never do it Saturday, only do it on Sunday. Those are still issues going on in our world today. But, but let's take a little further. What about when we come to church, what about the, the worship, the music, 
the parts that are involved, and there's a variety of opinions on, on how that all should work together. What do you, what do you wear to church? And, and is it okay to, to, we should wear our very best when you come to church? All of those issues, or even just what do you wear in general and th- different clothes? What about the TV shows and the movies that you watch? Or maybe you shouldn't watch them ever at all. It's just something that's beyond what you can do. Or wh- what about the Bible translation? Which one is the right one? And if you do that one, you, something's wrong with you. And, and, all, and, and issues such as that, or what about drinking beer or wine or alcohol of any kind? Some say yes, some say no, and some... And, and what, it's been across the centuries, and it still is, and you can pick the thing, whether it's dancing or, and by the way, I don't dance, but it's not a religious thing, it's that I da- can't dance. That's just my thing, all right? But it, whether, whatever your issue is, there's Christian taboos that have been for 2,000 years, even recently, in churches, it could be politics, could be who you follow in the political realm or social issues. Or doing things and all of that, and now you've got, those are not biblical issues. There are ways God says principles, but some of those things are things that we have to make, and we're going to have difference of opinion, and God knows that. And he says, and you can still be the church together, unified, but at some point you may have to agree to disagree over some of these disputable matters. Again, it's things what the Bible is not clear on, but we disagree. What do we do about that? The devil's going to try to do everything he can to separate us. So what do we do? Here's some things that I, that I've, that I want us to point out as we get to this. But before we do, look at the last phrase. He says, we're supposed to accept them not quarreling over these issues. Here's, here's the idea. When I, when I hear those phrases about the weak and the strong, this is, this is my personal opinion. I, I don't know that I've got a commentator who will agree with me, but I, I think from what I'm reading, here's something that shows up. At some point, every one of us follower of Christ, we're going to be either weak or strong. There's, there's going to be different issues because one, one definition of the weak and strong issue was the weak are, have an immaturity in a certain area of their spiritual journey. Well, that's me. I don't know about you, but I haven't got there yet. I'm still immature on certain issues. So at some point, I may be the weak. At some point, I may be the stronger. And that may be even a a matter of definition. Here's the point. God knows that. And God has put us together. So when I am weak, someone else can be strong and vice versa. this, This is the idea that we're working. We're loving mutually together. And he says, not quarreling, which means not to bring it up to argue about it. Here's what I've learned. Some of you would have to agree with me that there are people who have very strong opinions about disputable matters and they're very evangelistic about their opinions. It's not okay that they feel that way. They want to make sure that you feel that way and they're going to try to change your mind. Sure, they'll talk with you, but that's because you got to get, the, give me five minutes and I'll change your thought. That's, he says, that's not our point. There are going to be some issues that are not worth arguing over because this is more important, the bigger picture of unity in the church. So what are we supposed to do? Look at that first word. Accept those who are weak. Accept is a big word. It means more than just tolerate them. Like, well, if I see them at Walmart, I'll say hi to them. You know, it's, it's more, it literally means to receive them, to take them into yourself. In the Old Testament, several times, the word was used to mean when God brought his people into his arms, held them close. You're to treat them not just as people you, you put up with, but it's people who you love and you care for. Even though I don't agree with you on a disputable matter, I can still love you and I can bring you to myself. That's the spirit that will keep the church in unity. 
Here's what some things that I learned as we're going through this, this passage. I want to just pop out a few things. And I think they were helpful to me. Hopefully they will be to you. When someone disagrees with you about a disputable matter, what can I remember? Number one is this. Differences are inevitable. Acceptance is a choice. We are going to have differences of opinions on some issues. But what God told us to do is when that happens, acceptance is what we choose to do. I go back to our verse, accept the one whose faith is weak, who is weak in the faith without quarreling over disputable matters. This is what their, what their faith has led them to believe in this issue, and so accept them. That becomes our choice because this, at some point, this will happen. Whether it's the issues that I mentioned before, there's others that come upon, and, and even in a, a church like Calvary and in transition, there are things that will come. Listen to this. God says that that differences will happen. It's about what you choose to do with that. Look what Paul says happened in these issues. Verse number three. He says, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. So the one who has no problem with eating anything shouldn't show contempt for the one who, who doesn't choose to do that. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. He, he's talking to the one who will eat everything. He would refer to himself in that category, the strong. He doesn't see a problem with any. So he says, but here's what, here's what you think. Don't look with contempt on others. That word means don't think of them as worthless and don't look, look down your nose at them as if, as if you're better and you've got it all figured out and, and why are you so weak? Why are you, why are you so legalistic? You're, you're just, you're, your opinion of them is less because they just, they just can't get over this kind of stuff. He says, stop. It's not your place. You don't need to look down at contempt when someone doesn't agree with where you've come to in, in your belief and faith. But then he goes on to say, and, and those who don't eat everything, those who have some issues, well, then stop judging those who do. It, one of the big words with judgment here is the word condemn, and that becomes our issue, is if, if I think this should or shouldn't be done and you don't do it, then something's wrong with you, Either even to the point of maybe you're not even saved, or maybe and it, and they, it comes to this condemnation, and he says, stop it, Christians. Stop doing what, what he the criticism, the judgment, and, and, but let me, before I go on, make a very, very big, I think, huge clarification here. What Paul is not saying is that as Christians, we are to condemn all kinds of judgment. Please understand, Christians, there are times in our lives that, that as Christians, we have to respond to sin. We have to respond to sin even in another believer's life. But that goes against a lot of what we hear in our culture today. I mean, one of the most famous phrases of all is, don't judge me. If I'm doing something that you think is sin, well, then don't judge me. Don't, don't say anything. Our culture says with it, that the, and, and the truth is that, that right or wrong becomes relative. The, the words like tolerance and political correctness, they become to take the, the, the predominance, even the fact of you're considered a worse sinner if you're actually judging someone or you're making a statement. And that's what our culture believes. And it looks good on a T-shirt or it looks good on your Instagram, but that's not what the Bible is telling us. And Christians will use this passage and, of course, Jesus' famous words, Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. And they'll say that any time that anyone expresses a, an opinion that what you're doing is wrong, that that's wrong for you to do. That's not what Paul is, that's not the issue that Paul is dealing with here. There are sin and error issues that we have to deal with as Christians. 
as followers of Christ, even just a few verses before, chapter 13, when Paul listed out several things, he said, you know, cast aside the deeds of darkness, and then he listed six of them, included drunkenness and carousing and sexual immorality and dissension and jealousy. What is he, what's he doing? He's calling out people that are doing that. He said, stop. And as Christians, that's sometimes what we have to do. When the Bible is clear about a sin, that it needs to be addressed and say, no, brother and sister, that's wrong. Or an error that, that about theology, about doctrine, and they're going down a wrong path. It's not loving to just say, well, I can't judge. That's not my place. Yes, it is. As followers of Christ, he's not telling us we don't make judgments on what God has said to be right or wrong. The reality is if you truly love them, you don't want them to be destroyed. So if you truly love them, you're going to lovingly, and that's it, with love, you come alongside and your goal is not to condemn them, but to restore them back to health and to spiritual walk. That's what Christians do. So that's what Paul is saying. Make sure that you're not uh, over here, not, not uh, making any judgment, but that's not the issues he's dealing with here. Disputable matters have nothing to do with where the Bible is clear on sin and or doctrine. Disputable matters are those issues that are not covered in Scripture. Those, those issues in which, as, as believers, we have to, to decide and we have to form the opinion. That's what Paul is talking about here. But what a lot of people have done is they've elevated their opinions on disputable matters to the point of faith, to the point of spirituality. And Paul says that's what we have to be careful of because the church needs to be in unity if we're going to be transformed. But notice as he's going that if, if we're going to have transformed thought... He says we have to accept one another, but notice the last part. Why is this so important? Look what he says. For God has accepted them. Now, who's the them that he's talking about? Well, in immediate context, it sounds like it's probably the weak that are, I mean, the strong that the weak are, they're judging. And he says, why are you doing that? God's accepted them. So I do think possibly he's talking to, but as you look in context, it seems very possible that that them refers to anybody. It's about why, why are you holding, if God has accepted them, then who are you to not accept them? If God is, what we're talking about is believers here, Christians who are followers of Christ and, and they're, they're doing, you know, one of them's doing something that you don't like, it bothers you. They're, do, they're eating McIdleburgers and you think that's the wrong thing to do, right? And it's about, he says, if they're followers of mine, I've accepted them. Who are you then to reject them? You, you say it's, it's not a biblical issue. We're talking about an opinion here, but they've been accepted by God. Here's the thing. Christians, do you realize that if you are a follower of Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ has saved you, you are accepted by God now and forever? Let me show you what he said in Ephesians chapter number one. Paul said this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the things he says. He has blessed us. He chose us. Remember, he pulled us out. He predestined us to adoption. But look at this next phrase. He made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You have been forgiven. You've received redemption. Then you stand as one of God's kids and you're accepted. You're one of his. Do you have some rough edges that need to get knocked off? Absolutely. But as God's child, you are accepted. You are in him. So what he's saying here is that these are Christians. These are ones not, they're not running off doing their own thing. They're cry, trying to do the right thing. They're living the right way. And God has accepted them. So who are you? To reject them is what Paul is saying, to, or to condemn them. He goes on in verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? 
literally, he says, who do you think you are to get onto somebody else? You, so, they're work for somebody else. They don't work for you. They're not, they, don't, they don't answer to you. You're not their master. He goes on to say, to their own master, servants stand and fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. You say, oh, but if they go that way, if they do what I think they shouldn't do, what if they just, what? do you understand? They work for God, and he's big enough to help them to stand, to make it right in their lives. So we, we, what God is calling us to do is to accept what God has already accepted and understand that God's big enough to take care of them. But here's something else I learned in this passage. Believers, when we do act on these disputable matters, should act out of an inward, inward inner conviction. Here, here's what we know so far. One person eats anything, but another only eats vegetables. One person considers one day more sacred, but one, another considers every day alike. But here's how he summarizes in verse number five. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Here's where we're talking about these disputable matters. Okay, here's where we're supposed to accept them. Got it? God's accepted them. But what about these disputable matters? Is it really, does it, does it, does it matter? That's not what he says. What he says is on these disputable matters, these ones that are not necessarily covered in Scripture, you need to be fully convinced in your mind of what you believe about these things. It's a matter of this word fully persuaded, fully convinced, all your thought. It's, it's you need to have an assured conviction about these. Here's what I know. God, on some issues, there, whatever is not clear in Scripture, God want, has put the Holy Spirit in us to guide us, to teach us. And some of the ways that we go may be different than someone else, and God knows why, but God will be the one to direct us. So it's a matter of, of coming to that point, spending time with him to know this is what I believe about this particular issue or, or that. He says to be convinced in their own mind, which takes us back to Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind can get it wrong, but if you allow God to renew it, God will show you how you should think. Show you how, you say, God, what do I need to believe about this particular issue and, and on this day or this particular action? And God will show you when you trust the conscience that he gives you. But again, let me make sure we get it because I know someone's going to twist what Paul's saying around. He's not saying this, right? Uh, let me give you a, a, an example. If someone believes that uh, that the Bible says it's, it's uh, for sexual activity outside of marriage um, with, is, is a sin if it's not the way God has designed it, right? They believe that to be true. And then there's another person who says, oh, that's not a big deal to me. I don't, I don't care about that. And so Paul is not getting in the middle going, it doesn't matter, just make sure you're fully convinced. No. You see, those are issues that are covered in Scripture, those are issues that the Bible is very clear on of what God says about morality and what he says. So this isn't an issue of whatever you think is right, you know, whatever, just be convinced. That's not Paul's point. If it is clear in Scripture, then it's not about whether you agree or not. It's about whether you're going to obey or not, right? Or let's take a doctrinal one. You got some people that say, I believe that salvation is, is through Jesus, by faith, uh, through grace. It's Jesus only. That's only. And it has nothing to do with my works. It's what Jesus did. That's salvation. Then you have some others that go, well, yeah, salvation comes through Jesus, but you've got to do some other things. You've got to get baptized. You've got to go to church. And this whole thing, Jesus only, well, he's a good way, but he's not the only way. You can do, there are other ways to get there. Paul's not sitting back and saying, you know, just make sure you're fully convinced. No. One of those is right. One of them is wrong. 
One of them, biblically, God says Jesus is the only way. There's no other way to the Father. There is nothing that we can do. It is only God. So he's not saying, you know, it's just what, just be fully convinced and everything. As long as you're, you're convinced, that's not his point. His point is this, on these disputable matters that are not listed in Scripture, you need to spend some time with God and say, God, what should I think about this? When it comes down to, I'll just give you a personal example. It comes down to the issue of alcohol. That's one that God and I have spent a lot of time over the years deciding what is best for my life in that issue. What should I do in regards to that issue? And I am convinced of what I believe God wants me to do in my life for this, that issue. That's what you have to do as well. Because the Bible doesn't tell us all the ins and outs. It gives us some principles. It gives us some things to do and not to do. You take an issue and you make sure that you have spent time with God. This is what I am fully convinced that God wants to be done. Now, these people were not saying that you have to eat the right things and go to, in order to be saved. That would be a whole different issue. What they were saying was, we, we have strong opinions on this. We have strong opinions on the other way. And he said, great, be convinced of your opinion, but then understand that it's not your job then to make every opinion be the same as yours. Verse 6, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Do you see what he's saying? Both Christians that he's talking about, they're accepted by God, and both of them are doing their best to honor the Lord. They're not doing this for their own opinions. They're doing it for the Lord. In verse 8, he said, or verse 7, for none of us lives to ourselves alone, none of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. It's, it's about what God is showing me is right for my life. Not about an external tradition, what someone else is pressuring me to do. It's about what God has shown me to do, and it's about what his pleasure, and I want to do what's right for him. Because look at verse 9. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Here's the fact. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He died so that our sins could be forgiven he died to take our place because of what our sins deserved. And then when he rose again, once and for all, he was Lord. And he will be Lord forever. And once I received that gift of salvation, he became my Lord. His resurrection now makes him the Lord of my life. So what we're talking about, believers that have accepted him, they're accepted by God. They're God's servants they're, God, they're under God's lordship. And now in that position, he is saying he's the Lord of them all. And for me then to look down in contempt with someone or to judge someone based on an opinion over a disputable matter is like I'm saying I'm their Lord. And that's just not true. I'm not their master. I'm not in charge of their life. Jesus died and rose again. He is the Lord of their life and of mine. So that's what Paul is getting at is that we understand that God is in charge, and it's not about what we, uh, those disputable opinions, which leads me to the last thought. The judge is coming, and you are not him. There is a judgment that is coming, and this is, this is something we all have to make sure we understand. There has been and always will be only one absolutely pure, always right, always just judge, and that's God. You and I, sometimes we have to make judgments, but even when we have to make certain judgments, sometimes we get it wrong. That's human. We don't know all the parameters. I I read this cute story this week. 
You've got to think back a few years before most of us were around. Think back when prices were a lot cheaper. Kind of picture that old uh, Rockwell thought of, of a soda shop, and this young boy comes into a soda shop. And so that's kind of the setting. So this boy comes into the soda shop, looks up at the waitress at the counter and says, how much for a chocolate sundae? She said, well, that's 50 cents. So he pulls all his change out of his pocket, plops it down, begins to count it, counts, counts. Finally, he says, well... How much for just plain ice cream? She's a little perturbed. She, he's holding the real customers back. And he said, that's 35 cents. He said, oh, it counts again. He says, okay, just give me a plain bowl of ice cream. It'll be 35 cents. So he pulls out 35 cents, gives it to her, goes, sits down with his ice cream. Then he leaves. She goes to the table and begins to clean up his table. Perturbed that he caused all the trouble until he looks down and on the table, there's two nickels and five pennies, 15 cents. In other words, he had enough money to get a chocolate sundae, but he wanted to make sure he could leave her a tip. You see, sometimes we get it wrong. We do wrong things to people because we, have, we judge them incorrectly. But there is a judge who always gets it right. And here's what Paul says in verse 10. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Why are we taking all this time to judge others? Because one day we will stand before the ultimate judge. Every one of us in this room will stand face to face before God one day. And will answer for our lives and what we've done. In fact, verse 11, it's written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. Regardless of what a person says about God now or whether they believe and don't believe what they say about Jesus Christ, one day they will. One day everyone will know who Jesus is and they will acknowledge that when they stand before him. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. You will stand before God and you will be judged for what you did with his son. Did you receive his gift of salvation? And if you did, then you'll be judged for what you did with what the Son gave you to serve him, what you did with his life as, as his servant. But we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So Paul's point is, if, if we know we're standing there, then why are we messing with judging all the other people on issues that are not biblically driven? We end with the first part of verse 13, which is kind of a jumping off point for next Sunday. Verse 13 says this, therefore, let us stop passing judgment. Or you could simply say, stop condemning one another. One writer put it this way, let's simply, let us no longer be in the habit of criticizing one another. Why are we taking what God has told us to do, this unity of the church, and letting issues that are not biblical, not doctrinal, let them separate us from being the unified church that God has called us to be? So we come down to these questions. You will stand before God. What if that were today? What if today were the day when God said, what have you done with my son? Or what have you done with what I gave you to serve me? What if today was your, would you stand with confidence before God because your sins are forgiven, you're one of God's children, you receive his gift? Would you stand with confidence or fear because you haven't taken that step of following Jesus Christ.
You say, yes, I am one of God's kids. That part I'm confident I would stand in his place as one of his children. So then my question is to you, are, are you living life right now to please him? When you stood before him, when you say, God, I didn't get it right, didn't do it perfectly, but I did my best to please you. Even in those disputable decisions, I did my best to do what you called me to do. I live my life to please you. What would we say when we stood before him? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to just, let's think about those things. Let God speak to us about those truths. And I invite you to, to word your prayer to him about what God has said to you about these things. If you're here today and you've not yet received Christ as Savior, or you're watching online, you've not yet taken that step to receive the, the salvation, eternal life through Jesus Christ, would you right now? cry out from your heart, God, forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And I believe Jesus died for me so that I can stand in confidence before you knowing my sins are forgiven. Please forgive me. I want to follow you with my life. Would you do that today? Father God, thank you for what you've shown us. And I pray, Father, that you will allow this church, this temple that you're building in this community to be the unified body that you want to have to make a difference in this community. Lord, help us to stand strong on those things that the Bible stands strong on, those truths, the doctrines, the, the way in which we're to live, to stand without apology on what you've called us to live. But then, Lord, help us in the things that are disputable, the things that are matters of opinion. Help us to agree to disagree, to love others, and let you do your work through us together. God, please show us. And if there is one here without salvation through Christ, please draw them to yourself today. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I invite you just to take some time and speak to the Lord about what he is saying to you today. Go into his throne as his child confidently. Spend some time with the Father today.